to the final Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas Day. And I am so looking forward to being together virtually for Christmas Eve and looking forward to next weekend when we get to kind of slow down, take a breath, look back at our year and celebrate the things that God has done in our lives. Uh, One of the things that, no, I'm not going to go there. I am. One of the things that we're going to do that week, we kind of hinge it on any number of scriptures, but uh, for next week, we want to cling to something like Romans 10, 24 that says, continue to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so one of the ways we do that is by telling one another what God's been up to. Because there are days, maybe it's just me, but there are days, sometimes a few days, sometimes weeks, where I'm not sure God is still listening to my prayers, where I'm, I'm not really sure that he's working. I, I'm maybe struggling with the same thing again and again and again, and I, I'm not sure he's listening or whatever else. And so I need that. I need to hear from you guys, no, God is still working. Here's what he's done. God has been doing this. Here's what he's done. And so it is a, a great encouragement service then. And the other text that I'm going to give away that that I'm going to highlight next week is Luke chapter 8, where Jesus has this interaction with this man, and he says, let me come with you. But Jesus says, no, I need you to go back and tell the people about what I've done for you. And so we're going to do that next week, too. We're going to testify and witness to what God has done in our lives over the past year or so, and we're going to celebrate together. Over the past few weeks, we have looked at uh, three different texts that has helped us hopefully build that hopeful expectation that this Advent season is all about. In the first two weeks of the series, week one and two of Advent, we actually, instead of looking back to that first Christmas day, we actually look forward to Jesus' return, to his second coming, where he will come and, and usher in the full kingdom of God. And we looked at 2 Peter chapter 3, and we looked at Matthew chapter 25, and some passages there that, that help us anticipate that return and remind us of the hope that we have in heaven, where we can look forward to a day where once again we live in the presence of Jesus, in that new heaven, that new earth, where everything is as it should be, as it was made to be. And then last week, we, we did look back at that first Christmas We looked at the passage in Luke chapter 1 where the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she should be the earthly mother of Jesus. And we looked at their back and forth conversation that they had and and we commended Mary as one who had extraordinary faith. For whatever she understood in that moment, in that conversation, she recognized the social cost to herself of what was about to happen, being a young, unwed, now pregnant woman in that age. And instead of her standing up for her rights, instead of her saying, do you know what this is going to look like for me? Do you know what this is going to cost me? She responded to the angel and said, I'm in. Let it be to me as you said it would be. She understood. I anticipate a little bit in that first conversation, but as the days and weeks and months and years went on, she understood that this child would be the great fulfillment of hope. And that through this Son, the Son of God, the sins of the world would be dealt with. And so to answer a question posed in our modern Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Luke 1 tells us, yes, she knew. Maybe not entirely, but she had a pretty good idea what she was getting into. And she demonstrates for us that we can trust God's plan, even when it doesn't make sense to us in the moment even when we don't understand how it's all going to work out or it doesn't seem to be going the direction we think it should, 
we see from her that she trusted and she believed that what God wanted was best. This morning, we're going to be looking at another Advent Christmas passage, this time from Matthew chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip there, click there, swipe there. But before I read the passage, let me ask you a question. You can drop the answer in the chat if you're online as well. But do you remember the first time you visited Canmore or Banff, the Bow Valley? Might be a little bit more recent for some than others. There's a few that might say, no, I don't remember. I was born here. That's a long time ago. I don't have many memories from being born here. But for those of us who grew up maybe somewhere else, do you remember the first time you visited this area and like the, the awe and the wonder that hopefully I suspect it brought when you first drove into town? I remember having one couple tell me, uh, I'll name them because they gave me a nod in the first service. Gary and Kay uh, tell the story of how they came. They were, they were in the States at the time and somehow either travel Alberta or tourism Canada or someone had done a great job of marketing wherever they were and they came up on a trip. They went to Banff, had a wonderful time visiting out there and then they were driving back to the airport and for whatever reason, they pulled over in Canmore. They looked around and they said, now wait a second, what have we here? And from that point, it didn't take very long when they found a lot, built a house, retired, moved here, and now they've been here 20 years. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Edmonton. I don't necessarily remember the first time I arrived here, but I do remember uh, in my kind of single-digit age years or pre-teen years uh, visiting, whether it was Jasper or Banff or, or either. Uh, but I do remember once I got to, I, I think I was like 10 or 11 years old where we started skiing as a family. And if you grew up in Edmonton, you probably know Snow Valley Ski Hill. It's pretty intense, pretty extreme. You can do the whole thing in about three turns, and then you wait for an hour in the chairlift to get back up for three more turns. And we thought this was pretty fantastic. But I remember when we started coming to the mountains to ski, it would mean being in the car at 4.30 in the morning, because darn it, if we're going to make the trip, we're going to spend the money on the lift tickets, we're going to catch that first chair. So we're in the car at 4.30 in the morning, we're driving to, it was the same distance, either Jasper or Banff to Sunshine was where we'd go when we come down here. Because we wanted to be in those first couple rows. Not walking through the parking lot, parking in the front row, catching the first gondola. And then, similarly, we've come all this way, we spent this money on the lift tickets, darn it, we're catching the last chair of the day too. And then we'd ski down and often we would then drive home after that. So we'd get home at 9 p.m., which is a long day, one I wouldn't consider probably doing now in my age, current age, but in those days it was totally worth it. And I'm probably remembering this with some fairly thick rose-colored glasses. My mom can attest to that on the screen. She'll tell you the truth. But for those who live here, and have maybe lived here for a little while, have you ever found that you take this place for granted? Now that you've been here for a while, maybe you've started to notice that, you know what, some of the, the, the issues of the day start to occupy more of your thinking than the majesty of the mountains around us. I have. 100% I have. I've been here about uh, four and a half years now. Lived here now about four and a half years. And there was a time a little while ago where I was walking down the, the bike path next to Cougar Creek. You, may, maybe you know it. The creek's dry. There's a bike path on one side. I think I just dropped my daughter off at school. And sometimes I, you know, I'd walk up to the school. Then I'd go up and kind of do a little bit longer loop just to have some fresh air. get a few more steps and whatever else. And I was walking down this a little bit more scenic route to get back home. 
And I suspect I was look, kind of looking down at my feet, as, as I often do when I walk for whatever reason, and, and the stuff I had to get done that day started to spin in my mind, and that, that's where I was. This is what I got to get done. How am I going to get this all done? I got to pick up Janet, whatever time, all these things. But then I heard a helicopter taking off. And if you know the, know the path I'm talking about, right at the bottom of the hill there is where Alpine Helicopters runs their tours out of. And I've always been kind of fascinated by how a helicopter flies. I can sort of understand the physics of an airplane, but a helicopter, less. And so it's interesting to me. So I watched this thing take off, and we had been down, and I, I, they did, a, did some open tours sometime before that, and Jaden and I went out, and we, we saw these helicopters. They're pretty big. You can fit a number of people in them. And I'm watching this thing take off and climbing in front of the mountain behind it, this, this one right over here. And I'm watching it go up and kind of turn back to go up over ship's prow there, and and it climbs and climbs and keeps climbing and get, keeps getting smaller and smaller and climbing and climbing. And it seemed like it climbed forever. And it was almost completely out of sight before it made it to the top of the mountain. And in that moment, it was like, man, this, this helicopter, it's, it's a good size. There's, you know, there could be six, eight people in that thing. You can't even see it because it's so dwarfed by the mountain that I'm not even noticing anymore. And all of a sudden in that moment, the, the majesty of, of the rocks and the forest, they went from just being kind of a green mush to being like, man, how many trees are on that bank? All of a sudden, the, the wonder of the place, the majesty of the mountain started to come back into my mind that morning, and it was beautiful. But here's the thing. My familiarity with that little walking loop, that view in front of me, had caused me to miss out on the beauty and be overcome by just the stuff of the day. And I say all this because I was reminded of the, the detriment of familiarity when I was reading a Christmas devotion this week uh, from Paul Tripp, and he writes these things. Familiarity often does bad things to us. Often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. When we're familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. Often when we're familiar with things, we quit noticing them. When we're familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity can rob us of our wonder. And here's what's important about this. What has captured the wonders of our hearts will control the way we live. And so I say all of this as a bit of a warning. Some of us have come to many, many, many Christmas services over the years. And as you walk in those four weeks before Christmas of the Advent series, chances are you can guess what the preacher will be preaching on. You can probably have a, a pretty good shot at guessing the music that will be played. And maybe the familiarity of it all means we're no longer gripped by the magnificent events that we're celebrating. We're no longer filled with awe and wonder as we consider the birth of Jesus. Instead of looking with wide-eyed wonder out the windows at this area that we're surrounded from, from that, that, that feeling that first time you visit Canmore or Banff or the Bow Valley or, or even Jasper, we walk into a service and similarly we're just looking down at our feet trying to get through the day. How am I going to get through this week? How am I going to get through next week? When, when do the kids go back to school? All the things, right? And so as I read what may be a familiar text, my hope and prayer is that we would come to it this morning ready to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us with fresh eyes and warm hearts. 
ready to be amazed what's happening and have our sense of wonder renewed once again. So let me read for us from Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they were saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now again, this may be a familiar passage, but there's a few things I want us to sort of sit up and take note of as we, as we open our eyes to the events of that first Christmas with, with awe and wonder and also see a sense of mission to the world. The first thing, and help me out here, in these verses, who is acting as the main characters? Let me say that again with a little bit more of a hint. Which group are acting as the main characters? especially in verses 1 and 9 to 12, and not named Herod. The wise men. Thank you. And where did they come from? The east. Now, we don't know exactly what Matthew means when he says they came from the east, but many suggest that they're from Babylon. Kind of going back to the Old Testament, and we read in, in, in Daniel that that Babylon had these wise men. So maybe these were kind of from that line. Others suggest maybe they were from Persia or Egypt or somewhere else to the east. But these travelers came a long way. This wasn't some overnight hike down the road. They were also very likely high-ranking officials. We sing the, the carol, maybe we haven't sung it, which is probably fine. We three kings, they probably weren't actually kings but they were definitely high-ranking officials who had influence and power in their homeland. And they were likely uh, influenced by Jewish teachings. They were maybe f familiar with some of these things. Obviously, they were because they, they saw the star. They came and asked to meet this king of the Jews. But the important thing is they were not Jews. Now, you may be asking yourself, who cares? Why is this important? Let me tell you why. Matthew's gospel, when Matthew wrote this account for us, his primary audience was Jewish people. 
He went through great pains to write his gospel to the Jews to point them to Jesus as the Messiah. And all throughout the gospel, there's all kinds of evidence that that was what he was trying to do, who he was writing for, why he wrote the way he did, all these things pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. It's why Matthew starts with the genealogy that goes back to Abraham, right? Matthew 1.1, this is the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, now that's important for a Jewish person, and the son of Abraham. And then he lists the list of names. It's why we can very neatly divide up the Gospel of Matthew into five main sections, just like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's why Matthew so often writes and and sets Jesus up as the new Moses. His primary audience are Jewish people. Yet here we are in his text, the first thing Matthew records for us after Jesus is born is that these wise men came from a completely different culture, a completely different country, and a completely different religion, and they make their way to this infant, this toddler, Jesus, and what do they do? They fall down and worship him. Now, in the days that Matthew wrote, the days that this all happened, there was considerable tension, and that's an understatement, between Jew and Gentile. The Jews would do all they could do to avoid Gentiles, and the Gentiles would do all they could do to avoid the Jews. They were not friends. And yet here, right off the hop, Matthew, writing to Jews, highlights these Gentiles came to meet Jesus, and they worshipped him. And right away he's saying, God's concern is not just for Israel, but for everyone. So the wise men arrive on the scene They find themselves in Jerusalem, which makes sense. They're looking for a king. They go to the social, religious, political capital of the area, and they ask the king a question. And I don't know that I'd noticed it before. Uh, Sometimes we read things, and the familiarity just lets us sort of skim over them. But look at how they phrase their question to Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, we've read that a million times. What What are we talking about here? Did you catch what they, what they said? They didn't travel all this way to meet a future king. That's not what their, their question is asking. That's not the language they're using here. They didn't travel to meet a baby that was born that might someday become king. But the words they use mean that Jesus was born king already. That's who he is. The language describes who he is right now, not who he will be someday. This is different than the story of David in the Old Testament where we see David anointed as the next king, but it takes him 15 years to become king. This is something completely different. Jesus is already king in Matthew chapter 2. And that's why Herod, a world leader, in verse 3 was deeply disturbed in turmoil or terrified, depending on your translation. And because he was all of these things, all Jerusalem, the, po- the political power, the religious powers, were disturbed in turmoil and terrified with him. A little bit of background on Herod. He was installed as, quote, king of the Jews by the Roman Empire, and he ruled over Judea starting in about 40 B.C., and he was considered, he had this title, king of the Jews. He was vicious and bloodthirsty, And he held on to his power however he could. And whenever he sort of perceived any kind of threat to his rule, he would deal with that, rightly or wrongly, 
deal with that threat quickly and finally. He would have people killed. His wives and sons were not exempt from his murderous rage. And so when he hears from some wise men who have come from a long ways away that they've come to visit the king, no doubt he's upset. And because he's upset, everybody's upset. So in the midst of his turmoil, it seems like maybe the, the, the wise men were dismissed. He calls together all the chief priests and the scribes in what might be one of the more overlooked passages in this Christmas uh, story. He gets these guys all together and he asks them where this Messiah, where this king was supposed to be born. Now, you might think that these religious leaders, these elite, these guys, that they knew what they were supposed to know. They knew all the things. That when they were brought in the room with Herod and they were asked that question, hey, uh, so this group over here just said the king was born. Where was that supposed to happen? Maybe, just maybe you'd think they'd get a little bit excited. These, these chief priests, these scribes, they'd been waiting hundreds of years for this Messiah. These were the ones that knew the scriptures best. That's why they were called in as experts. These were the ones who were the most studied. These were the ones who had the best marks in Torah school. These were the ones who had studied under the best teachers and become the best teachers. Shouldn't they get a little bit fired up that there's, there's hints that this is happening right now? But they don't. Not that we read, anyways. One author suggests that they simply respond with indifference to this announcement, to Jesus. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he refers to the chief priests and the scribes more than anyone else in the New Testament. So just a quick reminder who he's talking about here. The chief priests, they were the ones that represented Jewish worship. They took care of the temple. They made sure people uh, worshipped rightly in the ways they were supposed to, in the places they were supposed to, all these things. And yet, despite God's purposes in appointing these priests, these religious leaders had basically become a group of corrupt, religiously oriented politicians at the time of Jesus' birth. They weren't living up to what they were called to. And then there's the scribes. These were the ones that represented Jewish law. So we've got the priests that represented the worship. We've got the scribes that represent Jewish law. And these were basically lawyers who knew and taught and interpreted the law, the Old Testament law, but also the traditions that had been developed and built as fences around the law. These guys were the experts. They knew all the right things. They had taken all the right courses. They'd read all the right stuff. They'd done all the right things. And yet, as one pastor notes, the spiritual state of these priests and scribes is a sobering reminder that knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. You can know the text well. These guys knew everything they were supposed to know. And you can still miss the point. And he prays, and I'll pray for us as well. May God keep us from this kind of deceptive rebellion in our own lives and our own churches. That we would know all the right things, but we would miss the point. When Herod asked, these guys knew where to look for the Messiah, but they didn't seem to do anything about it. They gave the answer, and they went back to whatever they were doing. They started in this moment, they started with indifference towards Jesus. But as you read through the Gospels, we find that that indifference turns into outright opposition and eventually leads them to putting Jesus on a cross. Interestingly enough, the next time Matthew used the title King of the Jews, it's given to Jesus at the end. And he's being beaten and mocked right before the crucifixion. 
I pray for us who are here, who are watching online, whoever might stumble upon this, that we would be a people that aren't so filled with information, knowing the right stuff, listening to the right sermons, following the right people on social, whatever it is, so filled with information that we miss the transformation because that's what Jesus came to do. So what happened to these wise men? Remember, these aren't the expected heroes of the story. A Jewish reader would catch this right away and understand and, and likely be appalled that the good Jews, the chief priests and the scribes are being cast as apathetic and almost villainous already. And the Gentiles are the heroes because they soldier on to go find this king. It reminds us, and let me carefully say this, it reminds us that maybe Jesus didn't come for just who we think he came for. But he came for everyone. Maybe in our minds we have this picture of here's what somebody who, will, who Jesus came for looks like. But boy, oh boy, throughout the Gospels do we see that's not the case. The heroes of this story are the wise men. In Luke, who does the angel go to right away? The shepherds, the lowest of the low. Not the wise men, or not, the, not the, the religious wise, not those who we would think get the first announcement. But Jesus came for everyone. Well, if we skip down back, back in our text down to verse 9, we see again that they saw the star that had led them on their journey to begin with. And I don't want to this morning get too bogged down in the logistics of star. I think we've done that in years past. We'll probably come to it again. You could write a whole paper. You could have a whole message series on what the star might have been. But a couple of really quick notes that I want to make. First, uh, as I studied this week, uh, astronomers have noted that there were two uh, events that happened in the skies right around this time that could have been what these wise men saw and followed. Uh, first, in about 7 BC, uh, the orbits of three planets, I believe you can check me on this, I could be wrong, but the orbits of Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter all lined up for a time so that from Earth they would have looked like a new really bright star. Now this has happened in recent history for us. I think it was only two planets. It might have been Venus and Mars. Again, check me on that. I'm happy to be corrected. But they lined up, and all of a sudden it was brighter than what we'd ever seen in the sky before. Okay? This, this sort of thing happens, is the point. Also, astronomers report that a couple years later, somewhere around 5 BC, there was a supernova in the sky, which could have also appeared for a time as a bright new star. So these people who studied the skies and who were aware of these things would have taken note. And both of these events would have been visible in the right area of the planet, and both happened near the end of Herod's life and reign. So there's some explanations of maybe what this star was. But the last thing I'll say about the star, and it kind of, kind of plays off something we said last week. Last week I quoted a pastor, and I uh, humbly don't say his name so that I don't butcher it, uh, but a pastor in the States that says this, the moment you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. The, the moment we admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. If, if God is who we say he is, all-powerful, creator of the universe, he can do whatever he wants. So if he wants to put a star in the sky for a time to lead people there and then it disappears, who am I to say he can't do that? Now this isn't just us kind of tossing out the God of the gaps theory. This is one that has led lots of people to kind of walk away from Jesus. Where we said, well, we can't understand that. Ergo, God must have done it. Well, over the last hundred years, there have been probably thousands of those things where, where the churches at one time said, well, we don't understand. God must have done it. And they said, no, actually, it's this. We can, we can watch this happen. We can see this happen. 
And so we're not just saying, don't ask questions, just take it in faith. But we are saying, if we believe in an omnipotent God who created the world, who breathed life into it, then we're saying he can do whatever he wants, whether we understand it or not. So maybe it happened to be these planets aligned just the right way. Maybe it happened to be a supernova that happened at just the right time. I would suggest that that is still God in control of his universe, setting events up. But maybe he did something in the sky just like he did in the Old Testament where he led his people through the desert as a pillar of fire. Call it a star. Call it the glory of an angel. However God chose to do it, it almost doesn't matter because the wise men saw whatever it was, followed it, and they came to Jesus. Purpose accomplished. When they met Jesus, they opened their eyes. They, we read they were filled with wonder and joy like people who experienced the Bow Valley for the first time. If you were at our, uh, we did an outdoor service in uh, September or so, and there was a group we met there. They were traveling. They'd come over from uh, the from England, I think. There's a group of six of them. They had a three-week three week holiday. Uh, they landed in Calgary. They were flying out of Vancouver. And so they had these three weeks where they were just like, we just need to be in Vancouver in three weeks. We're going to do whatever we want until we get there. I'm just going to enjoy the mountains. But they had landed in Calgary late on Saturday night, hopped a shuttle or rented a car or whatever, come out, got to the hotel in Canmore after dark, well after dark. And then the next morning they woke up to this. Blue skies. Right? If you remember that Sunday, it was one of the most stunning mornings we had all summer long. And they were just like, we, did, we had no idea. We had no idea this was here. And right? The wise men did the same thing. They followed the star. They got to the house. They met Jesus. They were overwhelmed with joy, it says. They arrived at the home where Jesus lived with his parents. They saw the boy with his mother, and they fell to their knees, and they bowed down, and they worshipped. Have you um, ever bowed to anyone? I can't say that I have, really. It's, it's not really something we do a lot in, in our cultures. Other cultures still do, and that's great. But for them, this was a sign of utmost respect. They only bowed down to someone who was superior to them. And remember, these just aren't three guys who walked off the street, happened in here, and, and were blown away by what happened. These were people with influence and power and riches and authority, and they probably traveled with a giant caravan to get there, and they see the infant. They meet the baby or the toddler, however old Jesus was at this time, and they bowed down to him, saying, I am low, you are high. And they presented him with these extremely valuable gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And without putting too much into this gift, it's thought that maybe these gifts res represented specific things, that gold was given to him because he was king. Not that he might someday be king, not because they knew that his parents were poor, so maybe we'll help him out a little bit because no, babies are expensive. But they gave him gold because he was king. They gave him frankincense because that's how you worshipped God. And they gave him myrrh because he was human and that myrrh also foreshadowed what he would do, his death on the cross. David Platt helpfully explains this myrrh gift here. Let me quote him a little bit at length. He says, In this gift of myrrh, given soon after Jesus' birth, we have a foretaste of his impending death. Jesus came for one reason. He was born to die. 
He came to take the payment and penalty for our sins. This shouldn't be for a surprise for us because Matthew's already told us through the angel's announcement, this is back in chapter 1, chapter 121, that he will be named Jesus and Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So then, in Jesus' birth, the significance of his death is important on our behalf. God loved the world so much that he sent his son to live a life of perfect obedience, a life we couldn't live, and then to die a death that our sins deserve. And Jesus rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Bethlehem is a key part of the gospel message. And so for us, that means that we, like the wise men, should put aside our pretense, our pride, and worship this king. Well, so what? As we wrap up, what do I want us to see from these verses this morning? Primarily this, that these 12 verses teach us that the global purpose of God is the praise of Jesus among all the people of the world. You see that here? I hope so. God has a global purpose that Jesus would be praised among all people, not just the Jews. Jesus didn't send his son to save a particular people at a particular place, at a particular time, but Jesus came for everyone, everywhere, at every time. And look at how God does this in this text, how we read it in history and in these verses. First, in order to lead the wise men to where they needed to be, he directs nature. Again, however he did that, it almost doesn't matter. He did it. Choose whatever way makes you feel comfortable. John Piper says that God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. I love that. It's like the universe is a tool in God's hand to point us to him. He not only directs nature, but God also draws the nations. Matthew, again, right off the bat in his gospel, written to the Jewish people, shows us that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he goes beyond that and points back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham, a king will come where God will bless all people, all nations, everywhere. How does God do this? Well, he sends Jesus. This is the invitation of Christmas. This is the invitation of the beginning of Matthew. It's what we celebrate now. Come and see the king. It's the title of our whole series, Walking Through the Gospel of John, to just come and see Jesus. We are invited just like the wise men who who were invited by the star to come and see the king and then joyfully offer our lives as worshipers. David Platt again continues. He says, The people of God should, regardless of their personality, smile and sing and lift their hands. Let me pause there for a second. Steve, we've talked about this in church history before. Some of us have grown up in churches where In order to worship, stand like this. And if we smile, well, somebody might say, that guy's a little too crazy. (laughs) A little too out there. Bit of a church joke. There's always truth in some of these, though. The people of God, regardless of their personality, smile, sing, lift their hands. Remember, we read the Psalms. We read about joyful noises. We read about drums and cymbals and stringed instruments, and maybe not quite guitars. Stringed instruments, we'll apply it to guitars. There's there's noise, there's singing, there's dancing, and there's enough dancing text in the Psalms to make every Baptist shudder a little bit. But that, I mean, this is a big deal, right? We're invited to worship this king. This should get us excited because the king has come. 
And worship involves joyful, affectionate, uninhibited praise. And God, forgive me for when I look around and think, man, if I raise my hands, these people will judge me. If I, like, get a little too crazy trying to express this praise, somebody's going to look at him and say, man, he really needs to tone it down over there. That's, that's me. That's my pride getting in the way of worship. God, forgive me. These powerful, influential, high-ranking men in Matthew 2, they had everything in the world's eyes, and they saw this toddler, and they humbled themselves. They brought themselves so low. They bowed at his feet. They gave him their most extravagant gifts, all they had to give, they gave him. And so we too can give Christ the offering of our lives, of everything. We lay it down before Jesus, and we don't do it begrudgingly, we do it joyfully, because he is the king. And we see his royalty, we see his deity, that he is God, and we see his humanity, that he came to do what we could never do for ourselves. And we are compelled to shout and sing about his great worth. But God didn't just send Jesus. He then goes ahead and sends the church. Look out. It doesn't end there. We're not just invited to come and worship and that's it. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, we are commissioned by this baby who's now grown up and done what he's come to do to go and tell everyone about this king we're going to challenge and encourage one another in just a minute to go and tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was born. As worshipers, this is our privilege to passionately spend our lives as witnesses. And this is just a small piece of what we're going to do next Sunday. When you all send me your stories, either typed out or videos or whatever else, we are going to be witnesses testifying to what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this reminder. I pray that um, you would help us shake the, maybe the cobwebs of familiarity from our minds, from our hearts, and that we would be, we'd be moved, stirred up to worship again. Thank you that you came not just for a certain people in a certain places at a certain time, but right from the beginning you came for all people of all time. And we are so humbled and thankful for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.